to Ephesians chapter 6, because we're going to talk about the importance of the Word of God this morning. We're going to talk about it from the perspective of um, how it really is the only offensive weapon that God has given us to fight, and we are called to fight as Christians. And so, uh, Jesse, if you'll get the next slide. This morning, I'm actually going to use slides for the first time, or maybe the first time in a while. But in Ephesians so far, we've looked at basically how God wants us to fight from a place of victory. But in John chapter 15, we get basically the theme of the book of Ephesians in John 15. And and just hear what he has to say. Remember the, the phrase that repeats over and over again in Ephesians is in Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he said, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, and neither can you unless you abide in me. So there, again, that phrase, in me, in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, and he who abides in me And I in him will bear much fruit, and without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and they throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me, though, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And that's how you can tell If you are abiding, if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. It's not an if, it's uh, if, when. And so he says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full or complete. And then he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Interestingly enough, in the book of Ephesians, he's talked about the wealth that we have because of our relationship with God, that he's called us, and then at the same time that he's given us the way to interact with one another. We have peace with God, and now we have peace with one another. And so if that is the case, he says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. He says, you are my friends, and if you do whatever I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So our relationship with him changes our relationship with one another. And then he starts turning the corner. He talks about how the world, he says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you read the gospel accounts, they hated Jesus. And hate led to the ultimate hate, murder. But then it says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. And think about it, before you started walking with Jesus, There was no struggle because you were just going with the flow. But then you stick your head up out of the thing. You say, I want to follow Jesus now. And there's a target there. There's warfare. It becomes hard. 
And I've heard many people say, well, if it's going to be like this, then why would I want to follow Jesus? It's going to be harder. Well, but many are those who go the way of destruction, but few find the way of life. He says, no, he says, then a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates, my, hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they've seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the world might be fulf- the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father... He will testify of me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So all this culminates in the fact that we've been affected by Jesus, changes our relationships with one another, and then because of that, we will bear witness. Now, we're like a billboard. A billboard just stands there and is what it is, but when people drive by and they read it, they see what it has to say, they can either believe it or not. And we, in the same way, being impacted by the Lord have a testimony, and we will bear witness. We are witnesses of the work of God. People knew you before Jesus, and then your life changed. You decided to follow Jesus, and it changed how you interacted with them. They'll be able to say whether they believe in Jesus or not, you're different. My own family looked at me, and they were like, you're different. Some of the things they liked, some of the things they didn't. My mom, she realized I was speaking to her respectfully for the first time, that I wasn't disrespecting her anymore that I wasn't being sarcastic all the time. I still have a little bit of that in there. But my, the way that I spoke to her changed because the fountain from which it was coming, my heart had been made new. And so my interaction with people, and so he says, you will be, witness, you will be my witnesses. And many times we think of a, a witness as somebody that's going out and proclaiming the gospel in the streets. And while there are people, and, and we are called to share the gospel in the streets with people we don't know and with people we do know, We are also witnesses just by virtue of what God is making us. And so Paul has written to the Ephesian church to encourage them. And he talked about relationships the last few weeks. But now that we're past this relationship interaction, he gets on to the the battle that's waging behind the scenes. And he's talked about relationships. And then he turns the corner. He says, finally, verse 10 of chapter 6 in Ephesians, My brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, what he does not say, and many times we read this in there, is, uh, you know, you kind of see in lots of people, whether they're Christians or not, will quote Philippians and say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And while there is the case that God strengthens me so I can be living for him, it has to be in the power that he supplies He says there, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He doesn't say, pull yourself by your own bootstraps, get up in your own power and live for me. What he says is, trust in the Lord and let him do it through you. You know, and many would say, well, that's kind of splitting hairs, but it's not. Our strength comes from the Lord. 
He is the maker of heaven and earth. So he says, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So that's going to be the theme this morning. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So before we start battling, it's important that we know who our enemy actually is. Our enemy is not our spouse. Our enemy is not our children. Our enemy is not the people that we work with. It's not the people that we go to school with. Our enemy is Satan, and he wants to trip us up and cause us to be ineffective in our lives as witnesses of Jesus Christ. And he will do anything from 1 John chapter 2. He'll give us the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are, he's got three main game plans, and he might switch them up a little bit. He might put a little you know, flea flicker in there. But most of the time, those are his three major game plans. And so I put up there for you, who is our enemy? We need to know who he is if we're going to battle against him. And so Satan is what he is called. And we picture what people dress up at Halloween. He's this red pitchfork carrying with the tail and the, the horns. And you've seen him in Looney Tune cartoons where the devil's sitting on this side and the, and the, you know, the, the angel's sitting on this side and they're arguing to the person, telling him what to do. And he's like, oh, which one? And, and that's the way we picture Satan. There was actually in 2004 to 2006, there was a survey done of evangelical Christians and 32% of people who called themselves born-again evangelical Christians, they said in the survey, they responded and said that they believed that Satan was actually just kind of a, a figurative thing, that he wasn't a real being. He was actually just kind of a, a personification, if you will, of evil, not a real person. Well, my Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus actually spoke of Satan. He actually spoke with him at one point. And so uh, because of that, we need to be educating ourselves to know what our battle is against. And so in Ephesians here, he, he talks about Satan. Satan means adversary. He's the enemy of God, devil. The word devil we hear is accuser of the brethren. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 and 11, it talks about Satan being the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God. He's allowed in God's presence somehow, and he'll accuse us. Kind of like someone would come up as, a, as a, a lawyer that would accuse someone else and try to make a case against them. Praise the Lord, we have an advocate who sits at the right hand of the Father and he listens to these accusations and he says, you know what, that's true, but I'm his advocate. I died for his sins. He's accepted my sacrifice and I'm no longer accountable for those. They've been forgiven. They've been washed white as snow. But before we get into that, he's also called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3. He's a murderer and a liar, John chapter 8. He's compared to a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He, he seeks and he, he prowls around like a lion, hiding under the grass, trying to figure out he, who he can devour. And then he's compared to a serpent. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, a few weeks ago, we talked about how Satan appeared to Adam and Eve in the garden as a serpent. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, he's there again, referred to as that serpent. He disguises himself as an angel of light. He's a deceiver. 
He's not going to come to you in a pitchfork with a pitchfork and horns and this all this red and go, hey, you know, and try to tempt you. He's going to come disguised as an angel of light. He's everything's good. Just go for it, you know. We don't have to be worried about this thing or that. You don't worry, and he'll just say, go for it, and he'll appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, just like he did to Eve. He said, hey, doesn't that look tasty? You know, it's, it's, it, see, it won't really kill you is what he told Eve. He said, it's just God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you're going to be like him. Who doesn't want to be like God? And there's that pride that wells up. And we're like, God's trying to withhold from me. It's the same thing that children deal with when their parents say no about something. Well, God's just, you know, my parents are just trying to withhold something that is not bad for me. Well, sometimes that happens because parents are, you know, they're human. But most of the time, parents are saying no because they know that thing's going to hurt them. And so God has good intentions. Satan comes along and says, I don't know if he's got good intentions. And then he's also called in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age. And Jesus never disputes that. He has been given a dominion. Now, nothing that he does is outside of God's sight or his authority. And you look at the book of Job. Uh, Satan comes along and, and, and God says to Job, Hey, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm like, why would he do that? But God knows in the hell, heavenlies that we need to have character built in us. And there was weak points in Job's faith. And so God was going to use this adversary. Satan thought he was going to get the upper hand and prove that God didn't. He only loved God because, you know, God blessed him. But throughout all of it, God showed through the testimony of Job that Job was going to trust him. Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And so Satan got a little lesson on what it means to see the power of love overcome fear. And so all of that said, where did Satan come from? There's all these ideas about where Satan came from. Well, we need to get our ideas from the Word of God before we go off t- track too much. So in Isaiah chapter 14, there's a couple of passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel. I know you guys, that's like, you got life verses in there. It's your favorite part of the Bible to read. It's not mine. You know, uh, prophecy is confusing to me, uh, which means when we go through it, and we will because we go through the entire counsel of God, I'm going to grow and I'm going to learn way more than I, I know now. But in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, there's a little passage in there where Isaiah speaks to the person of Lucifer. And Lucifer, you know, means luminous one. And it says there in verse 12, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and there's five I will statements. Now, what is the will? It's, it's the desire. It's what we plan to do. Well, Satan has five I will statements. And it, anytime you hear somebody say I a lot, you know, be careful because there's some I wills popping up in there. But he says, he says this, he says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. On the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend from the heights of the clouds. Excuse me, above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And then Isaiah says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. And so we have a picture here of Satan, son of the morning, 
uh, luminous one. And he's, he, notice he didn't say this out loud. It says, for you have said in your heart. There's these hidden desires that he's got in there. And when he's no longer one, number one, he's number one minus one. He was the highest of all the angels. He had a position of prominence in God's plan. Many believe he was actually a worship leader. And if you turn to Ezekiel chapter um, 28, there's another little uh, passage about him in verse 12. And he says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel speaking, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. Now he's talking about a literal king of Tyre in the region at his time where he was prophesying. But many believe that this passage actually speaks about the one who was behind the king of Tyre, who was Satan himself. And so he says, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. He was adorned in all of these most precious and beautiful stones. And then it says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So he is a created being covered in all of this beautiful stonery. And it says his timbrels and his pipes, those speak of kind of like vocal cords. He, he was apparently able to lead worship in some way or another. We don't know specifically what his place was, but this all implies that he had a purpose that God made him for. It says there in verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. In other words, I gave you authority. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. So there was this, all this building up. God made him for a purpose. He was chosen to be, it seems, a worship leader, and then there was iniquity found in him. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, we hear Jesus speak about this iniquity, or at least the results of it, in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. I didn't mark this one. I marked all kinds of other ones. Luke, John. Sorry about that. Luke chapter 10 says this. Jesus speaking. Right after he had sent out 70 to be witnesses to him in the region, they returned and they had done this amazing thing. God had given them power to cast out demons and to perform miracles. And they were all excited. And who wouldn't be, right? If Jesus said, hey, I'm going to give you authority to cast out demons, and I'm going to give you the ability to, to heal people and, and then uh, perform miracles. And, and then the 70 returned with joy, verse 17 of Luke 10. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They were built up. They were excited. And, and Jesus warned them. He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I've made you indestructible. He said, but nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Don't get too excited about this. Don't get too built up in pride because 
He says, don't get too excited about this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice in the fact because your names are written in heaven. Lucifer was in heaven, been given all these blessings. He was given a prominent position in the kingdom of God, and yet in his being built up and kind of prideful, what happened is though he was called and blessed, he, he ended up falling because of pride. And so in the same way, Jesus is warning them, I've given you authority over demons and the ability to cast out demons and perform miracles, and yet don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. So all of that said, we get a little bit of a taste of Satan and this, this dark side of things. And so, you know, Satan's helpers are the, many believe the, the one-third of the angels that were taken from heaven with him. They fell with Lucifer. He took a third of the stars is what Revelation says. And they are demons. So they're fallen angels. And so they are powerful, but they're created beings. They followed Satan when he rebelled against God. But the main point, number one, is to point out that there is this, this realm going on and there's a battle, a heavenly battle. But the main point is that our battle is not against each other. It's not against people. It's not against flesh and blood is what he says here in Ephesians. He says, but it's against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. They've been allowed to continue to go about and do Satan's business for whatever reason. But what Satan means for harm, just like in the cross, killing the Savior of the world, Satan meant to harm and stop God's plan to rescue individual people and to save them. God used it for good. God planned it and even accepted it. He sent Jesus to die. And Satan thought he was going to stop God's plan. And God said, nope, I'm going to use your rebellion to save many. And so, therefore, since we're not battling against flesh and blood, go to the next slide. How do we battle against an enemy that we cannot see? How do we battle against an enemy that we're really good at battling with each other? I will say that. We are good. We've got swords. We've got shields. We've got ways that we argue with one another. We always get like to get the last word in. We know how to battle with people. Now, we fail at it many times, especially as Christians. But how do we battle the Lord's way, and how do we fight our actual enemy? We can't just cut down Satan with a sword. We can't stop things by just, you know, knocking people out. So we're going to go through real quickly this morning, but this is going to recognize that this is going to be a smorgasbord. This is going to be kind of what we're supposed to battle with. But then I want you to challenge you guys to do a little bit of digging on your own. So I've given you some verses this morning, but our weapons, Paul was tied to a soldier. Remember, Paul's writing Ephesians while he's in prison in Rome. And many believe he was actually tied to two soldiers every day. Whether you believe that or not, whether that's true or not, he's in Rome in prison, so he's at least seeing these guards and these soldiers. And what they were dressed like, is, if Jesse will show you the next slide, is they had on this uniform. And you'll notice all the things we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about the feet shod with these special shoes and this shield that's four foot by two foot, many believe. And it's covered in leather. And then there's this sword and this belt and this breastplate. And then he's got on a helmet. Now, we all know that there are specific reasons they're wearing these because if there's not, they'd take them off. You know, 
uh, if they're not useful, then they're just going to hinder you. It's heavy. It's strong material. And so any Roman soldier would not by any means go out to battle without wearing his standard issue equipment because that equipment was designed specifically to protect him and to give him the ability to offensively fight his enemy. So if you'll go back a slide, what I want to point out before we start is that most Christians, and I would say most affirmatively, they go out to battle each and every day without putting on their battle garb, their standard issue equipment. So this morning, more than anything, I want to point out that God has given you defenses built into who we are. We just got to put them on. Put on Christ is what Paul wrote to, his, uh, to, to different churches. He wrote, put off the old and put on the new. And so this morning, what are we supposed to put on? How are we supposed to be in Christ? Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote this to the church there at Corinth. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, what did Satan do? He exalted himself against the knowledge of God. He said, I will be like the Most High, implying that he really didn't need God. I'll do my own thing. And what Paul writes here is that God's given us this weaponry to cast down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And so he accomplishes this in Ephesians chapter 6, and he talks about these points of armor. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. We are living in the evil day. Uh, Light and righteousness do not reign. Evil reigns. Sin is abounding. And so how do we deal with this sinful world that we live in when we're called to live a part of the kingdom of light? He says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. How do you gird your waist? Do you think of a, a girdle? Now, men, we don't wear girdles, right? And I don't know a whole lot of women that do anymore. They call them something else, I'm sure. But the gird, the girding of your clothing is what that soldier was doing. They would have these long flowing outfits, but when they go to battle, they would pull them up and they would wrap this belt around them to hold their outfit together so when they start doing hand-to-hand combat, they're not left with their drawers on the ground. Now, many of us could use this in a very practical way. Lots of people in our society, they don't know how to wear a belt. I'm a big fan of the belt. I feel undone if I don't have the belt. But the belt he's talking about is the belt of truth. If Satan is a liar, and he will whisper lies into your life, how do you combat the lies other than knowing what the truth says? Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The breastplate of righteousness, he talks about. He says, and having uh, put on the breastplate of righteousness, let's read through it, sorry. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, and with all perseverance and supplications for all the saints, 
So he, he begins by saying, put on the, the whole armor. He says, gird your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Well, what does that mean? Here I put, fight the accuser with righteousness in Christ. When you are accused of doing something wrong, the answer always is, my righteousness isn't what I've done right or wrong. It's in Christ who has been my salvation. When I get to the throne of God and I stand before him, and I have to give an account for all that I've done in this life, the accuser is going to be standing there and saying, he did this, 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 and this. And you're going to say, that's all true. If you're in Christ, you've got to be honest. Those things are true. Most of the things that people accuse us of, unfortunately, are true. Is that where our righteousness comes from, our works? No. Our righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. At that point, we have the opportunity to say, my righteousness is found in that man right there, Jesus Christ. And so our accusations are all gone because Jesus paid it all on the cross for our sins. And there won't be a test. I mean, it's not like we'll get up there and not know what to say. But what we believe will be proven with what we say to our accuser. And so our righteousness is found in Christ. But there is a practical thing. If our lifestyle, we're trying to live righteously, if someone tries to accuse you, they're going to be put to shame because everybody's going to know the difference. They're going to say, that guy, you believe that guy did that? That's not anywhere possibly true because I know that guy. His lifestyle proves what he believes. Has he messed up and failed and sinned against me before? Absolutely. But nine times out of ten, he doesn't. And so a righteous life, is a, it's a defense. If your life is committed to following Jesus and you are obedient to what he tells you to do and when you, he changes you and you let him do that thing, you won't have to try to defend yourself all the time. He will be your defense practically and positionally. You won't need to defend yourself because there will be no need for a defense. If someone is not guilty of a crime and they get taken to court, they don't need a lawyer. Now, obviously things get twisted in our world and juries will believe things. But for anyone who knows someone in Christ, when there's accusations brought against them, there should be a defense built in by our lifestyle to the breastplate of righteousness. Gospel shoes, that's what I call them. He says, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These feet, these shoes that they would wear would be sandals. But on the bottoms of them, they would have these little metal things stuck through that had little curves on them. So picture it, you're wearing sandals, which I would not recommend doing because we have shoes that are better than that now. But in the case that you're out to battle, or even when you're playing sports, it's like having cleats on. You're playing football and you don't have your cleats on and some guy runs up against you and just trying to go full-on blitz to your quarterback, you want to be able to dig in, right? You're going to stop him. Those guys that are trying to, to block for whatever your favorite quarterback is, they better be able to dig in and be unmovable. Well, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel, and the gospel is the reason for you walking. It grips down. It's a foundational thing. It gives you steady feet. And in Matthew chapter 7, it actually says, He who believes my words and puts his faith in them is like the man who built his house on a foundation that was on solid ground. Not on the sand, but on solid ground. And the waves crash, and the wind blows, and that house will be, it will remain firm. So in the same way, we, when we go out to battle, we need sure footing. But also, when we put on our shoes, it's because we're planning on walking somewhere. 
And the most victorious people I know in Christ are those who go out and share the gospel of peace. I put up there for you. Um, ah, Satan has declared war, but Christians are ambassadors of peace from God's kingdom, proclaiming that the kingdom is coming. And so we have this opportunity. And in Isaiah 52, verse 7, it says, Blessed are and how beautiful are the feet of those who wear the shoes of the gospel that go out to share the good news. So then, next slide. He continues on and he talks about, uh, Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Well, I think about a shield. I don't think about something quenching fire. I think of something deflecting fire. You know, you get a bunch of those arrows. You guys ever watch The Lord of the Rings? And they get those archers out there, and you got Legolas, and he can shoot anywhere and jump on anything. You know, longest movies ever. Um, but, but when you're watching them, you see these archers, and some of them are shooting regular arrows. And some of them, they have pitch around the, the, the sharp pointy end, and they light it on fire, and then they shoot it at their enemies. Because number one, it can stab people. Number two, it can burn down their house, or their shield, or their fortress. And so all of these things are for your destruction. And so what they would do is they would take the big tall shields, about four feet tall, which would block all of me. And then it's about two feet wide. And they would cover it in leather. And they would moisten that leather. So when that arrow comes in, a fiery dart, as soon as it hits the wet leather, it quenches that fire. Now, what are the fiery darts that Satan sends at you? What are the fiery darts that Satan sends at us? Well, I put on there for you, fire darts can be lies, blasphemous thoughts. We all have them. You don't have to be discouraged when you think something you know is wrong. Take that thought and say, Lord, forgive me for thinking that. But also know that Satan likes to play with our minds. He does. Hateful thoughts about others, doubts, and burning desires to sin. Now, these are all things that are built up in us. And God is trying to weed them out. And so when they're revealed, recognize you can't blame anybody else for those things. They were already there. James talks about that in chapter 1. But he says, uh, I wrote, These can come at any time, so we must be on guard and always carrying our shield so we can hunker down under it. But the beauty of these is that they can also be locked together. So faith is something that we all need to practice, but it can also be practiced together. So if you've ever seen any of those movies where these soldiers take all their shields and they lock them together, and then they take their, their shoes with the little cleats on them, and then they start pushing forward, and they start taking ground. They can get into the enemy's territory, and then they can start wreaking havoc. But they got to be protected from the front the whole time they're doing it. That takes faith. When we have faith, and another person has faith, and then another person has faith, and we all get together and have that same faith, we can build a wall and storm the gates of hell. And by doing that, we get in the enemy territory and we can share the gospel of peace. And so all these analogies, because Paul was looking at these Roman guards and he had nothing but time on his hands. He's praying for these churches and he's going, we're at war here. We need to be prepared for this war. So then he talks about the helmet of salvation. And in there he says, taking the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, verse 17. The helmet of salvation covers the control center of the body. If you've ever studied anything about military or defeating an enemy, the biggest point of contact you want to make to knock out your enemy is to take out the head. Take out the head, you take out the control center, 
the enemy is gone. We need to be wearing the helmet of salvation to protect ourselves from Satan trying to mess with our minds. And the way we can do that is by putting on salvation like a helmet to protect us. A mind controlled by God is covered in the helmet of salvation. And then the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God, our only offensive weapon. Hebrews 4.12 talks about this, how the Word of God is like a sharp sword. It divides between soul and spirit. And, uh, and it gets down to the deep parts that nobody else can see. Now, I put there for you, a physical sword wounds you to hurt and kill. But the sword of the Spirit, it wounds those you use it against, but it also wounds you. It's a double-edged sword. But it does that to heal and give life. It's like a surgeon's scalpel. It hurts you, but it gets down to the part that needs to be worked on. And in the same way, when we wield the sword of the Spirit properly, the beauty is that the people we share the Word of God with might not like us anymore, but they've heard the truth, and the truth can set them free as well. It can heal. And what's interesting is when you get at time, look at chapter 4 of Luke, because in there, Jesus being baptized by John was taken by the Spirit into the wilderness for a time of testing for 40 days. And during that time, Satan showed up to him personally to try to trip him up in the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. He said, hey, you've been out here fasting for 40 days. No food. Why don't you just turn that rock into bread and eat it? You're the Son of God. You got that right. And, and Jesus, when he countered, when he went with the offensive, he said what? He said, hey, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said it is written. He was quoting scripture. He didn't have the New Testament. He had the first five books. He had the Pentateuch. Maybe some of the prophets, but he had in there words that he could defeat the enemy with. And then he said some other things, but every time he responded to Satan, one time Satan responded to him with the word of God, but he, his favorite band is Twisted Scripture. And so he used scripture, but he turned it and he, he perverted it. He twisted it to mean something it didn't. And Jesus called him out on it using scripture. And so, again, that's our only offensive weapon. So next slide. What I want to point out is that, uh, sorry, the next one. Jesus is our armor. If we are in Christ, Satan is a liar and Jesus is the truth. Satan is fallen. Jesus is righteous in the sight of God. He's our breastplate. Satan is the adversary. He's against God. Jesus is the king of peace. Satan's at war. We're at peace. Satan is faithless. He doesn't trust God. Jesus is faithful. Satan destroys. Jesus is the one who saves. Satan twists the word of God, but Jesus is the word of God. And when we trusted Jesus Christ, we received that armor in Christ. Jesus is our battle equipment. Putting on the armor is what it means to remain in Christ, like Ephesians has been talking about. So in Christ, we aren't fighting for victory. Victory was already won at Calvary on the cross, positionally. But practically, we're still battling. So how do we remain in Him? But remember, when you're fighting, when you're going through this, and you think, man, Satan's on my toes all the time. Remember that Satan's already been defeated. He's just, he's still kicking. He's still trying to take as many people with him as he can. But if we remain in Christ, he, he, he's going to lose. And we're going to be with God forever. So next slide. So verse 18 through 20, he talks about prayer. And I'm going to just hit the highlights. 18 through 20. He says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, 
And for me, he says, that utterance may be given to me. In other words, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So prayer, this is where the battle's really won. It's in the, the prayer room. If, if you guys have seen, uh, what's that movie that just came out? Uh, War Room. It's talking about basically how in every battle, there's people battling, but there's this room where there are commanders making decisions, looking at maps, taking all the in- intelligent information and saying, what are we going to do? What's the best way to do this? But they're doing it where they're not in the heat of the battle and being confused and twisted around. And that's beautiful. It's like a coach. You watch the football game today, and you, it won't be that exciting today because it's the Pro Bowl, right? Is that today? But the next week, you got these offensive and defensive coordinators. They're not down on the field. They're looking at it from an aerial perspective going, hey, they keep doing the same thing. Why don't we just go over here and get around them? And so they, they plan their attack based on what they're seeing when the players on the field can't see it. And so we have this beautiful opportunity as believers to pray to get the heavenly perspective. He's up in the box watching it outside of time going, hey, it'd be better if you go around. Or it'd be better if you hit it at the middle because he's got a weak point there. And God knows Satan's weak points. So pray always, he says, without ceasing. Pray with all prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. If you want a model to pray, this is kind of one that I like to use because I can remember it. Adore the Lord. Just just pray to the Lord and thank him and and bless him for who he is. Look at him and, and worship him. And then confess your sins. Thank him for all that he's given you. The biggest battle is ward when we are content with what he's given us. And then make supplications. Then at the end, ask him for things. But then he says, pray in the Spirit. And that just means to pray in the will of God. That's spoken of in Romans 8. And then pray with open eyes. Now, I did that and it's on a glare there. You can't read it. But it says, be watchful. Be watchful. Be vigilant. Be like the guy that's sitting on the city gate watching to see who's approaching. Be watchful over your homes. Pray over your families. God will give you vision to see possible problems for the future if you're willing to listen. Pray with perseverance. Stick to it and don't quit. If you got something that you're absolutely obsessed with and you're like, Lord, when are you going to work in this? Keep praying. See it through, because the beauty of it is you'll see him answer. It'll be yes, no, or maybe, or yes, no, or wait. But the beauty is, is he wants us to be watchful. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit to God, that's step one, and then resist the devil, and then he will flee. But he will not flee from you unless you're submitted to God. That's where the battle is won. And uh, Robert Law said this, he said, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven, it is getting God's will done on earth. And then, pray for all the saints. Our Father, not my Father who art in heaven, but our Father. We're a group together. He's asking for the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the great Apostle Paul, probably the biggest missionary that the, the Bible has in it. And yet what it says there is, he's asking for prayer. He needs the Lord. Not for, and, and at the same time, he's not praying for comfort. He's in prison or for getting out of prison. He says, Lord, give me boldness while I'm in chains. I'm an ambassador in prison. 
Don't change my situation. Change me so that I can be effective in my situation. So Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We can do that in prayer. One last slide, I promise. So, verse 21 through 24. Know that you're not alone. This is one of the biggest reasons we need to join together regularly as body of believers. Not forsaking the fellowship of the brethren, as is the case of some, Hebrews 10, 24, but getting together regularly to stir one another up to love and to good works. And so he says, be intentional about encouraging one another. Now he's saying that. He's kind of just telling them, okay, this is the end of the letter. Bye. But he says it by saying this. He says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. I'm sending a letter, but I'm sending a person with the letter so he can give an account for what I'm doing. But then he says, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know how our affairs, what's going on, and that you may be comforted in your hearts. They might be discouraged. Their pastor has been sent to prison. This is not encouraging when you're following your pastor. So he says, I'm sending this man to you. Let him know, hey, I'm doing good spiritually, and I'm in prison, but God's using it. And then he says this. He says, peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace, he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. So his parting words are peace to the brethren, love with faith, and then he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, meaning in impurity, in reality. And so let me ask you this morning, as we close, are you battling against people or are you battling against our enemy? And when you're battling, are you battling the way that God has given us to battle? Are you putting on the armor Are you putting on the breastplate of righteousness? Are your feet prepared to go and share the gospel? Do you know the word of God? Are you asking the Lord, I don't know it, give it to me, pour it into me. Because I've been told so many times, whether it was by Gibbs or, you know, all these other people that are outspoken, they're like, how do you, like, I don't know the word of God like you do. And I always tell them there's no, like, theme to it. There's no magic, you know, pastor magic stuff. I've read the Word of God for the last nine years, and the Word of God has been soaked into my heart. It's what I love more than any other book, and because of that, I read it, and I don't always get it, but I read it because faith comes by the hearing of the Word of God, and hearing comes by reading the Word of God. It's this crazy dichotomy, but as we immerse ourselves in it, what God does is He He gives us the truth, it sets us free, and then he uses us to pour that word through to someone else. We have to battle with his armor. We have to use his way. And when we battle his way, what we'll see is fruit produced. Many will come to know Jesus. Bibles sitting in a hotel room are helpful because they're sitting there and people got nothing else to do besides flip on the HBO and eventually that gets old. It doesn't satisfy And they'll turn and they're like, what's in the drawer here? Let's read the menu from the local restaurant. Hey, look, a Bible. Never read that thing. Or I'm going hunting. Here's this little Bible. But the beauty of that is that the Word of God does exactly what Isaiah 55 says. It goes out and it's just like rain on the thirsty ground when it takes root and it'll produce fruit. 
and that fruit will bear for eternity. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, many of us uh, go day in and day out, and we're trying to live in this battle, and we're finding out that this world is not a playground, but it's a battleground. And Satan wants to destroy our families, our churches. Uh, you know, we got this move coming up, and all I can see is um, that during this time, if we focus too much on the move, then people will be picked off by Satan because we're not investing in the kingdom in people. And so, Father, give us that balance to work out the practical stuff as we're working in our jobs and in our families and in our sports and everything else. But, Lord, help us also to see this life as the battle that it truly is, that Satan wants to take as many people with him as he can. Father, um, put a hedge of protection around us. Protect us by your, your word and, and use this wisdom that we've just taken in today from Ephesians. Uh, help us to do our part to put on the armor and to trust in Jesus fully in, in practical stuff and spiritual stuff, in sickness and in health, all of those things, Lord, we need you every hour. I thank you that though Satan is powerful and he's more powerful than us, greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this word and we pray, Father, help us to put this to practice this week. In Jesus' name, amen.